chapter 12 today. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. <clears throat> and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. <clears throat> Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, and that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who anointed Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord again and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the balls and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah. And Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw the that Nash, Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? <clears throat> I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord. In asking for yourselves a king, so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord, 
and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from, your, from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty, empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for, for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to invite our children to Children's Church. And um, we will open with a word of prayer. Lord, we do pour out our praise to you, pour out our prayers to you. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us life, new life, and a hope of eternal life. Thank you, Lord. You are so good to us. Uh, Lord, we want to pray for those of us, uh, those who are in our congregation, who are associated with us, who are, who are ill, who are um, suffering. Father, I pray for Rudy, Rudy um, Cruz's uh, brother who's in the hospital. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might bring healing and restoration and that uh, the family would um, be gathered and, and be calling on you and uh, calling out to you for health and for hope. And uh, on the under, other end of that scale, Father, we pray for uh, Ebony Williams and, and her baby, that uh, the baby would come soon and safely, that uh, the delivery would be smooth, and that we would get to celebrate this new life that you have brought to them. Um, so be with the, the Williams and, and bless them with a, a real sure feeling of your presence and awareness of, of you being with them and, and caring for them, um, especially in this huge adjustment of having a, a third person in their house now, this, this very dependent little human being. Um, but Lord, we, we look forward to celebrating the joy of this new life with them. So be with them too. And Father, we um, consider what, you're, what is going on at Aubrey um, College and, and about three or four other college campuses around the world or around the, the nation right now. And Lord, I, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, um, but I don't know that this is actual revival that you're bringing or just an awakening of some sleepy Christians. Um, either way, Lord, it, it appears to be a work of your spirit. And so we pray that you would continue that work. And Lord, that this might be the beginning of something much bigger. Lord, that you would grant our nation revival, that you would turn many hearts to you. Uh, as I heard one pastor say that, that sleepy Christians would be awakened that nominal Christians would be converted and that non-Christians would be amazed and come to know the, the Savior. So Lord, would you uh, use this? Maybe this is that spark and, and that's my hope and that's my, my eager anticipation, but Lord, it, this is all in your hand. And so we, we just count on you. Um, revive your church in America, we pray. And Lord, now as we turn to your word and we hear um, Samuel uh, Lord, would you use that in our hearts to uh, to spark us in personal revival, that we would 
uh, awaken and, and delight again in you uh, this week again as we start uh, start our cycle again. Uh, be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the uh, Chicago Police Department is not known for being the most upright and forthright policing community on the planet. For example, when we lived there, the police chief actually got arrested and uh, lost his job. And I, I believe he's still in jail because he was basically running a torture chamber to extract confessions from people. Um, it was just, it was appalling. Um, another thing that the department as a whole did was uh, there was a gentleman who was released from prison and they put him on a watch list because statistically he was liable to, uh, to, uh, um, to uh, engage in criminal activity again. So much for innocent until proven guilty. Um, so the, the, the department has got kind of a, a reputation, but not everybody in the police, Chicago Police Department is horrible. I want to tell you a story about some folks who did something really admirable. On um, November 6, 2016, uh, police officers Charles Arts and Michael Clary uh, received a call for a well-being check on an abandoned apartment. Um, in Chicago, they're called a two-flat. It's a house, usually with a big bay window, and it's two floors, and there's two apartments in it. Uh, they got called to check on this two-flat. When they went in, they found three girls, ages seven, two, and one inside, alone and cold in an um, insect-infested apartment without running water or heat in November in Chicago. So Sergeant Arts described it. He said there was garbage everywhere, feces in one of the bedrooms. The bedroom they were in was very dirty. It had a mattress that they were huddled on. And I saw a picture. It was just, it was horrible. These, these little girls were all alone. Uh, Arts said the girls looked malnourished and the older one looked like she'd been physically abused. So the officers took the terrified children and took them to a hospital and soon after that arrested their father for child abuse and probably and neglect, I would imagine too. Um, that wasn't the end of the story though. The officers remained with the girls even when they were discharged from the hospital. Um, when they talked to him, the oldest girl whose name was Destiny, they found out she had never been, in, never been to school and she couldn't write her own name. But she did tell them what her grandmother's name was. Her grandmother's name was uh, Dolores Anderson. And so the officers contacted Dolores and she said she would take the children. She hadn't seen them in years and she would take these children and, and, and provide for them. So what the officers did was they began to bring Dolores things that the children needed. They found out that Dolores had given the children the bed, her bed and she was sleeping on the floor. So the department began to bring diapers and food and clothing to them. Eventually, they found out that Dolores had to quit her temporary part-time jobs in order to care for the children. So she was in real financial need. So what uh, Officer Arts did is he talked to his supervisor and he got permission to launch a GoFundMe campaign to provide for this family. Um, so it wasn't just they, they did a wellness check. They continued to care for these folks. Well, the word got out and it was pretty soon that the uh, Internal Affairs Commander, Robert Clemens, heard about it. And so he put Arts under investigation for violating company rules, for doing the right thing. Now, this was not a popular decision. Um, the police union, the superintendent of police, and even community activists called for an end to this investigation. This was ridiculous. Now, I couldn't find what happened with the investigation because, you know, news will report on the bad news, but seldom follow up with, oh, by the way, here's the good news. But I will say a few months later, um, Arts and Clement and the other, uh, another officer who were involved were all given the American Red Cross 
2017 Law Enforcement Award for Law Enforcement Heroes. And uh, uh, Lieutenant Arts retired in 2007 as a police lieutenant. So apparently it worked out good in the end. But it's just amazing that you get somebody who's got this long, impeccable record, who does everything right, who does a good thing, and then winds up being investigated, being turned against. And, and that's kind of what we're going to see this morning with the Lord is, is Samuel is going to call this similar kind of thing to our attention. Um, and so that's that's where we're going to go. This is, uh, but there's a reminder in this. And it's what Samuel's calling us to do is he's calling us to consider the great things that the Lord has done, to remember those. Um, in the ESV, the, the chapter title is um, Samuel's Farewell Address. And I think that's exactly the wrong thing because Samuel's going to show up a couple of more times. He's not done. And he's not saying he's, he's going anywhere. So I did a real quick word count. Samuel appears in the chapter seven times. He's a prominent figure. The word king, though, appears 13 times. And when you look at those 13 times, 10 of them is the king, refers to the king the people ask for. Twice, it is foreign kings that are mentioned. And once, it's the Lord. But the word that occurs most often in this section is Lord. It recur it, I don't know if you heard it when, when it was being read. The word Lord appears 33 times over and over and over again. So just on sheer number of re repetitions, what do you think this chapter is about? It, it's not about the king. It's not about Samuel. It's about the Lord. And the word Saul appears exactly zero times. He's just not even featured in this. Uh, he's not. He's there, but he's he's just not what's most important. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. This this is going to be interesting. In that it is the coronation. I think it's the formal coronation of Saul. This is the coronation sermon that's being preached. But Saul's not mentioned, and and the whole thing is focused entirely on God. So here we go. This is this is how it goes. It begins with uh, Samuel said to the people. Now you remember the end of chapter eleven. Um, all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. And they sacrificed, and they had peace offerings, and they celebrated and rejoiced greatly. So that was the, the good news at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, in the midst of the celebration, Saul stands up, or Samuel stands up, and he makes an announcement. He said, the Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought you out, your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning the righteous deeds the Lord has performed for you and for your fathers. Oh, I skipped ahead. I'm sorry. My pages stick together. Samuel said to Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and I have made a king for you. So that's why this is sometimes thought of as Samuel's farewell sermon. But I, I don't think it's that. I think what it is, is it's the coronation. But first, he does draw attention to himself. And he says, um, he said, now the king walks before you and I'm old and gray. And that word for gray is not just the color, it is gray-haired. It's an old man. He's saying, I'm an old man. And behold, my sons are with you. I don't think that's good news. <laughs> I don't think that's, you know, isn't this great? My sons are with you? Because remember what his sons are like. They're not, they're not great. Um, and he skips right past them, too. He says, I have walked before you since my youth until this day. Not my sons. I have. So what he's doing is he's, he's saying, now, I, I'm going to present myself to you. The, the kingdom is about to transition. I was your last judge, and I'm about to hand it off to the king. So I want an accounting of my performance. Have I defrauded you? Have I cheated you? Have I oppressed you? Have I been bad to you in any way, shape, or form? 
And the people say, no, that's, that's never happened. You've been nothing but a great judge. That's actually an accusation against the people. And we'll see why, because the next thing that's, that Samuel is going to do is he's going to recount their history. But he says, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness to this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So his anointed, this is a phrase we're going to get used to in Samuel because David uses it quite a bit when he talks about Saul. So it's the Lord's anointed. Um, it is the word is where we get the word Messiah. And that's why the Christ, which is the Greek version of Messiah, is a kingly office. Is Jesus is in that kingly office. And this is where it begins, referring to the king as the anointed. Now, the, what does he mean when he says, the Lord and his anointed be witness against you? Not to you, but against you. Well, that's where he's going to go in this next section. This is where he goes with that that witness against them. And it's both Yahweh and the king are going to be a witness. And so that's where I jumped ahead and read the wrong section. The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron. And what he does in this section is he goes through redemptive history. He's going to remind them of all that the Lord has done with them. So he starts all the way back, verse eight, he says, when Jacob went into Egypt, that's the end of the book of Genesis. He goes all the way back then. And he says, Israel went into Egypt and then he summarizes really quickly. <laughs> they went into Egypt and they were oppressed. And your fathers cried out and they were delivered. So he, he takes a big chunk of redemptive history and just sums it up because where we find ourselves is now in the land. So he's skipping over the 400 years in, uh, in Egypt, 40 years in exile, the time it took to settle the promised land and to get situated. And he jumps to what's probably more recent in their memory, which is the time of the judges. So he says, they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines and the hand of King of Moab and they fought against them. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the king of the army of Hazor. That comes from Judges chapter four. And the way that begins is, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. That's, that's the introduction to that section. And so they had done evil. Sisera and Hazor all opposed them. And it's Deborah and Barak who deliver them. God raises up these, these judges to do that. The next thing he mentions is into the hands of the Philistines. And this comes from actually two places, Judges 10 and 13. Listen to Judges 10, the introduction to that one. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. What a ringing accusation. But when that happened in chapter 10, God raises up Jephthah, who delivered them out of their hands. And then the next one is from Judges 13. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And this time it's Samson who's raised up and delivers them from the hand of the Philistines. And then the last one he mentions is into the hands of the king of Moab, which comes from Judges chapter 3, kind of backs up in history. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this time it's Ehud who delivers them. And they fought against them. So the picture here is God did this. He delivered you from Egypt. He led you through the wilderness. He provided for 40 years. He brought you into the promised land. He settled the promised land. He got you established and you turned away from him. 
and he delivered you and you turned away from him. And he raised up another judge who delivered you and you turned away from him. And he raised up another judge. He did it over and over again. And so this is why it's important that Samuel is standing at the end of this line of judges and it's a witness against Israel. This is what you've been like. You've been continuing, turn, continually turning away from them. So then he goes on, he says, um, and they fought against them in verse 11. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. God has so far successfully, faithfully, regularly raised up judges to deliver you. Jerubbabel is Gideon. And you remember the story of Gideon with the fleece and it's wet and it's dry and, and back and forth. It was Gideon who'd done those things. And we heard about uh, Barak and, and Jephthah, and then he includes himself and Samuel. We're at the end of the cycle of judges and we're about to get this king. But have the people changed? That's the accusation against them. No, because in, in verse 12, he says, and when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites come against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. Now we met Nahash in the last chapter, but this whole king cycle started much earlier. And so um, what's going on there is ancient armies didn't mobilize as quick as our armies do. They didn't have C-17s that could load their troops in and drop them in really quick. It would take a long time for to mobilize an army, to get them lined up, to get in, in position. So what's probably going on is, is Nahash began his, his troubling of Israel long ago. And that was part of the instigation to remind them or to for the people to say, we need a king because we're going to get beat up. So he's probably happened before, but this is an immediate, this is in the context of we just beat Nahash. So he says, in that context, you said we will have a king to raise uh, to rule over us. And then he's then this ringing in, uh, uh, accusation again, when the Lord your God was your king. I've just demonstrated to you, he says, all these times that the Lord has delivered you. He has faithfully raised up a person to deliver you. And you said, no, we don't want that. We want a king. So it's this, this, this troubling history that Israel has. It. And then in verse 17, he says, is not the wheat harvest today. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord for asking for a king. So what's, what's significant about the wheat harvest? Well, wheat harvest, usually it comes in at the end of the summer. And at the end of summer, there's really not a whole bunch of rain and thunder and stuff. So it's unusual that that would happen. But that's not what's significant about this, because it's not impossible that it would happen. What's significant about this is the fact that Samuel says, I will call upon the Lord and he will send it. So it's rare that it ever happens. And yet he predicts it. He says it's going to happen. And the Lord sent rain and thunder on the wheat harvest. And it terrified the people. It, they weren't terrified because of thunder. They'd heard thunder before. They weren't terrorized because it happened at this, this particular time of year when it doesn't often happen. They were terror, terrified because Samuel had just recounted their history, how judges had been raised up again and again and again. And now Samuel is their last judge and they're rejecting him and they're rejecting God as their king and they're asking for somebody else. And this thunder is this, act, this, this punctuation on Samuel's announcement. It is this, this boom that says exactly what he said. That's right. So that's what's terrifying. And it, it terrifies them that they asked for a king. So in verse 19, they said, all the people said to Samuel, pray for us. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For he's added to all of our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. They got the message. 
They, the, the recounting of their history since they'd been settled in the promised land under the judges, they went, we did all of that. We're guilt. That's us. And now we've added to that, that we've asked for a king. Pray for us. So Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And don't turn aside after empty things. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. So he, he assures them in this middle of this, this instance of huge community repentance, they acknowledge their sin. We have done these things and we have done it again. In, in that moment of repentance, Samuel says, I, I will never sin against the Lord by not praying for you. Of course, I will pray for you. And he warns them, he says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Those two phrases they don't go together, do they? You've done all this either evil, therefore you better be afraid. God's going to zap you. God's going to get you for that. They, they are touching. They're right next to each other. There's no break in the Hebrew. The NIV translates it in two phrases, kind of breaks it up, says, do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Trying to, trying to move that apart. The, the uh, Christian standard version says, uh, do not be afraid, even though you have committed all this evil. Well, the words even though aren't there. And the one that really tries to smooth it over is the New Living Translation, which says, don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You have certainly done wrong. That is such a delusion of what's going on there. These two phrases belong together, and they're intended to clash together like two symbols. It's intended to be riveting. What do you mean, don't be afraid? We have done all this evil. Shouldn't we be afraid because we've done all this evil? It, it's supposed to be like that. You have done all this evil, but don't be afraid. Why? Why should I not be afraid? I have offended this God who defeated Pharaoh in his mighty army, the greatest economic and military powerhouse in the world, and he did it like that. He's, he's all of these kings who came against us. He's wiped them out just because he felt like it. Why should I not be afraid? I've offended him. I have done evil in his sight. That's that spirit of repentance that's terrifying them. Well, Samuel goes on to explain why. He says that because of his great namesake, because he said, I have decided that Israel is my people, therefore for my namesake, I won't, I won't destroy them. Why is that reassuring? It's reassuring because it doesn't depend on us. It wasn't God saying, well, you repented enough and therefore I won't destroy you this time. His answer is, it has nothing to do with you guys. It's my namesake. That's why. That's why I'm not going to destroy you. That's why you should not be afraid of all the evil you have done. It's because I am a God who cares. He is interested in his own glory, his own purpose. And so that is this wonderful thing that they get to hear, that, that they can acknowledge their sin, they can confess their sin, and yet not be afraid that God's going to destroy them. So he says, don't turn to these empty things which can't deliver. What he means by empty things is he's talking about the idols, the false gods that they had been worshiping before. These empty things that are, that are constantly out there, jarring them, calling them away, drawing them after. I mean, even in, in the book of Samuel, what did we just see happen with one of those false things? Dagon, the almighty, the all-powerful, the invincible, fell flat on his face. They had to set Dagon, the, impo the, the imponderable, the, the all-powerful back up on his pedestal, and then he fell down and broke. 
That's an empty thing that can't deliver you. Fell down before the Lord. There's a call in the human heart to these empty things, though. It's there. It's just alluring for us to go after empty things that we think are going to satisfy. We can see them. We can touch them. We know how to manipulate them. If we do the right thing, we'll get the right product out of them. Our God is not like that. He can't be manipulated. He can't be bought. He's going to respond the way he's going to respond. And so that's, that's scary. Now, does this apply to us? We're Christians. We're living in the modern world. We were talking about idols this morning in Sunday school. Surely this doesn't apply to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul does a similar thing to Samuel's speech here. He remembers the Exodus. And as he explains the Exodus and he shows how this is something that God has been doing, he says, starting in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You could say the same thing about Samuel's speech here. This happened to them as an example, but it's been written down for us, for you today, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're in danger of the same thing. Then the next part is this encouragement to resist temptation. Then he ends that, that thought with, therefore, my beloved, Flee idolatry. That was written down for your instruction. Flee idolatry. But we don't live in a time of idols. Even Paul lived in a day of idols, right? He went through Athens and he saw all of these temples set up to all these different gods. We don't live in such a barbaric situation. We have purged our society of all that, right? Well, if that's true, then 1 Corinthians doesn't apply to you. Go and have a good day. We'll talk to you later. We know that ain't true. That's not the fact. So what idols, what empty things might be drawing us away? What empty thing might be leading us to say, well, God has ruled over us, but we want a king. What kind of things might that be? I think in our current situation, our current day, political power, left or right, whichever persuasion you are, there is this allure to say that's going to deliver us. The church is under threat. And if we can just get the political power, we get the right person in the right office. Diane Feinstein's getting ready to retire. We need to get the right person in that office and we'll be delivered. Lord, we want a king to rule over us. Maybe it's justice. We want justice, either social or criminal. The, the criminals are acting up. We need to do that. There's, there's social injustice. If we get the right justice, if we get the right laws passed, the right judges on the benches, the right situation, then, then Lord, it'll be great. This nation will be secure. We won't have people cutting up our, our uh, air conditioning units and stealing copper. It, it's going to be great. We need justice. Lord, we want a king to rule over us. And that king's name is justice. Maybe what we want, maybe that empty thing that's calling us is influence. I want to be an influencer. I want to be on social media and be a big-time influencer. Maybe, and this is the one that's really scary, maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's a distraction from me even thinking about any of it. Maybe it's just another flashing image on a screen, another like, another tweet, another whatever it is, another TV show, another Marvel movie, another Batman film, and it just anesthetizes us. And we say, we got a king to rule over us. We're set. Thanks, Lord. We appreciate that. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Idolatry is when 
Something else is going to satisfy us. Something else is going to deliver us. Something else is going to rule over us. Something else is the answer to the question rather than God is sovereign. He's on the throne. So how do we struggle against that kind of idolatry? How do we war against our hearts being driven? Because we can't help it. We live in this world and these things do call. And we have a responsibility to be politically engaged. We, we should be longing for justice. We, you know, our social media is just in the air. It's just everywhere. How, how do we war against these things? How do we protect our hearts from that? Well, in verse 24, he finishes his speech. He says, fear the Lord. Now, in verse 20, he said, don't be afraid. And then verse 24, he says, fear the Lord. Is he contradicting himself? Those are two different things. Don't be afraid. God is going to bring justice about. But you should fear the Lord. Fear the right things. Fear, fear the right things in the right way. So why do we fear the Lord? Why would we fear the Lord? Um, sometimes uh, preachers will say, well, it's just you know, a, a showing great respect. That is a perfectly good word for respect the Lord. And it ain't this. This is fear the Lord. Phobos. Be afraid of God. Fear the Lord. Why? Well, because he gives us undeserved, unmerited, great things, and no earthly power could accomplish them. He's done, these things are done by someone so powerful, so, so above us, so beyond us, he could speak a world and, word and a universe becomes into being by his word. Someone you can't intimidate with your authority, bribe with your wealth, or woo with your flattery or good looks. He's indifferent to you. He doesn't need you. Someone who acts as he pleases, who could send rain and thunder out of season. Someone who could heal a disease, raise the dead, send demons running at his word. He doesn't depend on us to do these things. He acts independently. And yet he was the one who went silent as a land of the shores to be found guilty in a sham trial. He could have ended it. He even told, he even told Pilate, Right now, I could call down legions of angels, but I'm not going to. That, that's a power that is controlled, that, that is working towards a purpose. He's the one who carried the own device, his own device of torture and death to the place where he'd be executed. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, who defeated sin, death, the grave, and rose for our justification. So how do we, how do we war against these false, these empty things? We do what Samuel told him to do. Consider the great works of the Lord. Consider all that he's done for you. Remember redemptive history. Samuel only had up to Samuel in redemptive history. He, he really only had the, the time of the judges. What have we got since then? We've got everything Samuel had. We've got the time of the kings. We've got the split kingdom. We've got the exile. We've got the return from exile. We've got the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We've got the New Testament where... Uh, John the Baptist appears and begins to preach, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've got Jesus walking on the earth, doing miracles, casting out demons, healing people, announcing that the kingdom of God has come. We've got his death, his burial, and his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his disciples going out and preaching the gospel to the ends of the nations, and people believing, Gentiles turning on a regular basis. We've got the um, fall of Rome, we've got the Christianization of Rome, where the, the, the um, emperor turns to Christ. We've got the building of Western civilization. We've got the Protestant Reformation, 
We've got the establishment of the colonies in America fleeing religious persecution. We've got religious freedom in our nation. You have a story that fits into this flow of redemptive history. There is a point where you came to trust in Jesus Christ. He did a work in you. And we have this story now today of the church in America, Trinity Community Church. Remember the good things that the Lord has done for you, the great things that he has accomplished for you. That's how you turn away from false idols. Consider what he's did, what he's done, and how you didn't deserve it. Receive his grace and his gifts that you can never earn. If you can earn it, it's not grace. Just receive it. Fear him. But don't be afraid of the evil you have done because Jesus paid that bill for you. It's done. It is finished. So in the end, what he says is, fear the Lord. So the, what is this about? Is this section about uh, the uh, establishment of Saul as king of Israel? It really isn't. I mean, that's the occasion. That's the, the purpose for it. That was what we were doing is we were anointing our king, probably putting a crown on his head if they had a crown. Maybe they got one from, um, from Nahash when they took him. But it's not about that, is it? This whole thing is, as you enter into this kingdom, as we start this cycle with the kings, don't forget who's really in charge. And that's the call, that's the warning, that's the, the, the um, uh, announcement to us. Beloved, flee idols. Turn away from empty things. In the midst of our day-to-day -day lives, outside of Sunday morning, remember, God is in charge. He is the great king. And the great news is he's coming back and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. In the meantime, what did he tell us to do? Be good stewards. Be busy about the business I've given you to do. Carry the kingdom forward. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Be my witnesses. Flee idols. So as we are waiting the coming of the king, let's not anoint accidentally or on purpose other kings in his place. That's the warning that Saul or Samuel has for us this morning is remember who actual king is. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do confess to you that um, there is this constantly ringing in our ears. Other things promise so many wonderful things. But Lord, those promises we know are fleeting and empty. They won't last. Our, our health fails. Our looks fail. Our power and influence fails. Our money wears out and is gone. Politics is a constantly something that constantly blows in the wind. And so, Lord, remind your people that those things cannot save. They will not deliver. And, Lord, help us all to remember your great deeds, the tremendous things that you've done for us throughout history. And, Lord, help us to keep our focus on the king who reigns. And, Lord Jesus, we pray, come soon. Return to your, your uh, land, take your kingdom here, and rule your people, we pray. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.